You are listening to the sermon podcast from Christ Community Church, Ardmore, Oklahoma. You can find more sermons and resources at ardmorecc.com. Now here's Pastor Artie Favre with today's message. Introduction, I tried my best to kind of articulate a little bit of what I'm talking about whenever I use the word gospel so that we can kind of be on the same page because I know that that's the kind of word that once I say it, we all have various different definitions in our minds and so so that kind of was my attempt to kind of get us on the same page of what we're talking about that and I'll review that briefly in just a moment but we're looking at the book of Colossians now what, what I chosen to do rather than having one sermon where I just kind of outline all the details of who was it written to who was it written by and why was it written and those sorts of kind of investigative questions that we need to ask whenever we come to Bible study I'm going to answer those questions kind of as we go out as we explore the book and as those issues come up in the book itself but suffice to say I'm not going to take a lot of time I, I essentially am in general agreement uh, with with scholarship that it was probably it was written by the apostle Paul it was written by the church of Colossae probably was also uh, distributed among uh, Hierapolis and Laodicea which were all these are all kind of cities that were all kind of uh, together um, and you probably are familiar with Laodicea from uh, the famous passage in I think Revelation 3 but in Colossians what Paul is doing he's writing probably he's under arrest that's why it's considered one of the prison epistles because that's the context in which he wrote it and he and he writes it for two reasons that are going to become clear throughout the book the first one comes clear right from the very uh, uh, outset and the other one a, a few chapters down the road but essentially number one he wrote the book to encourage continued growth in the gospel continued growth in the gospel now there were specific ways he was calling to encourage them uh, in terms of their context and as we go through the book we'll, we'll explore that however the truth is the reason why the truth behind the book of Colossians is so universal is because I don't know about you but I think that I've never been a part of church where the participants couldn't use encouragement about their continued growth in the gospel and remember I'm going to use this phrase unless it gets me into trouble because I because I know sometimes when I try to be creative with my language it just ends up being confusing so if it is I may scrap it later but essentially what I want to communicate is I want us to hold intention this idea that we looked at last week which when we talk about gospel and salvation we are talking about a four-dimensional salvation because what I tried to establish last week was that the gospel is the good news that God has done everything to heal that which sin has harmed and it's sin hasn't just harmed our relationship with God it's harmed every facet of our existence and so when we say saved and we talk about God healing that which sin has harmed we're not just talking about forgiveness of sins essentially it's four dimensions to our salvation and I said if we look back at Genesis chapter 1 and 2 salvation is essentially a restoration of shalom and shalom is God's justice and peace and and it is the conditions that God creates in order to optimize human flourishing and so shalom is the dream of God. So the dream of God is the place where we find our origins for why we exist and why we, and why we were created. And so, so as we think about that and we look at Genesis 1 and 2, we recognize that, that, that God heals what, God, what, what sin has harmed, both in our relationship with God, in our relationship with ourselves, in our relationship with one another, and in our relationship with the created order. All four of those dimensions are highlighted in Genesis chapter 3 of being disrupted because of the entrance of sin. And then we 
jumped right over into uh, Genesis chapter 4, which tells the story of Cain and Abel, where once again we're able to see how all four of those dimensions of human existence are interrupted because of the presence of sin. So our salvation is holistic. It's four-dimensional. It is not just that I respond to the gospel call so that my sins are forgiven so that I go to heaven, but it's also as I open up to the intuitive work of the Holy Spirit who has been deposited in my soul as the presence of Christ within me so that I am progressively growing in experiencing the restoration of my relationship with God, the restoration of my relationship with myself, an ongoing restoration of my relationship with others, and an ongoing restoration of my relationship with this great gift of creation that God has given us in which for, in, 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 as the place in which we experience and live out his shalom. The second reason why he wrote the book, and this is important because as we're going to highlight, it's a little different. It's unique to their situation, but the idea is somewhat universal. So he wrote, first of all, to encourage continued growth in the gospel. Secondly, he writes this letter to warn against toxic religious beliefs that can hinder their growth in the gospel. He writes it to warn against toxic religious beliefs that can hinder their growth in the gospel. And let's make sure we're very clear on this. The ideology that he's warning against that has become toxic is not so-called secular ideology or secular uh, philosophy. It is religious ideology. And sometimes it's a little bit of a challenge for us to, to sort through, but if we look at the scriptures and we journey through the New Testament and we take this journey from what was called the old uh, covenant, which was then fulfilled and made obsolete and to make room for what the New Testament celebrates as the new covenant brought to us by Christ. Um, uh, what, what, um, um, what we'll see in that process is what caused them to justify sinful resistance to what God was presently doing is the is the pseudo authority that they drew from what the, how they understood how they understood God worked in the past. So what you're going to see throughout the New Testament is any time that the believers try to take this. Uh, old covenant which is fulfilled and obsolete and mix it in with the new covenant they end up coming with a hybrid that is something less than new covenant and bondage begins to creep back in bondage to sin bondage to ideology bondage to, bondage to a way of living that is in fact anti-christ rather than one that is lived as a, 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 an awareness of abiding in christ so the ideology he's warning against is religious in nature it is theological in nature the book of colossians reminds us that you can trust jesus and begin to follow the spirit but if you allow your mind to be bogged down with toxic religious thinking it will in fact hinder your growth in the gospel and paul is going to bring that out that's part of the reason why he wrote this book of colossians so to encourage continued growth and to warn against toxic religious beliefs that can hinder that growth. So let's just jump right in. Verse one, we read Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 
So as we walk through this, one of the things I want to highlight, and we'll do that a lot more next week and the following week, because then we're really going to get into the substance of God's, of, of God's, of Paul's a prayer for the Colossians. Uh, but one of the things I want you to see that I want us pause is, is I don't want us just to study the book. I also want to allow the Spirit to speak to us those devotional realities that are modeled by Paul and the Colossians. And right here from the very beginning, we see a model of something that I think really does, and, and I'm trying not to be too superlative here, but it has the, 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 the potential of really transforming our private practice of prayer. And what Paul models here is that, is that, is that the first step of intercession is to practice thanksgiving for those for whom we are interceding. Now, this is true when I'm praying for my, my, my spouse or my children or, 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 or my uh, uh, community of faith, but it's also true when I get ready to pray for my enemies or those who've hurt me or harmed me or offended me. The, the pattern of prayer is it's really important that we learn to cultivate this humble attitude of gratitude and thanksgiving, just like Paul says. He's the first thing that I do when I pray for you is I thank God for you. And, 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 I, and I think that it's important that we recognize this is, this is more than just tacking on to the front of the prayer, thank you for so-and-so. This is about entering into that moment, allowing the Spirit to transform my heart to where even if I'm praying for someone with whom I am offended or, or, I've, or, or from whom I've, I've, I've been hurt, I, I still learn to appreciate and cultivate an attitude and a posture of gratitude for them as extensions of God's image. It's so critical that we do this because if not, instead of becoming people-oriented, we'll become issue-oriented. And we'll turn people into categories rather than seeing them as human beings. And so what we see critically here at the very beginning, one of the practices that's necessary for healthy, a healthy prayer life and a healthy life of intercession for others is to learn to enter into this moment where we experience from the Spirit of God true thankfulness and gratitude for those for whom we are praying. Now we move on into, into verse four. And he says, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Now take a look at this paragraph here. And you're, what, what I hope that you see is some continuity in Paul's letters, that he, he returns to themes that he writes about in Corinthians and that he writes about in Ephesians and in Colossians and Galatians. And he returns to these themes. And here we see that Paul sums up the fruit of the gospel with what we could call this trio of virtues. And this trio of virtues is probably a phrase we're all familiar with. He kind of gets them out of order here. But do you see what those trio of virtues are? He celebrates them in 1 Corinthians 13 as well. What are they? Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. The very first place that we want to look for an authentic, uh, to, as evidence of an authentic gospel encounter is the cultivation of faith, hope, and love. Now, this gets very important as we become more sophisticated and information has become a democracy, particularly now with the rise of the internet, and so that we can go and we can explore all these different theological speculations and theological schools of thought and theological doctrines, and, and we tend to equate an increase in understanding the information about Christianity with growth and maturity, but that is not true. In fact, Paul even warns that knowledge can build, uh, can puff up. 
whereas love edifies. And so it's even possible that we can become so cerebral in our pursuit of faith that that's really all that it becomes. And then we live this, uh, this life of dichotomy where we have our belief systems that we keep in a separate category from our actual living. And so what Paul says, he doesn't say that your intellectual maturity is what um, is, 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 the, is the sign and the evidence of the gospel. What he says is it's the cultivation of virtue. Where we want to look to see if we're growing in the gospel is simply this. Are we increasing in our experience and display and manifestation of faith, hope, and love? These are the signposts of the gospel. Notice that it's not just information and instructive. Look at the way he speaks about the gospel. That last sentence there that's at the end of verse five and going into verse six, it says, you have already heard about this hope and the word of truth, the gospel. Look, that has come to you. So Paul begins to personify the gospel as though it's a living thing. And he actually says the gospel is something that has actively pursued you, that's actively sought you out. What Paul is highlighting here is that the gospel is active. It is not just information, it is active. He personifies the gospel as the activity of God. It's, so, so in some ways he uses this synonymously. The gospel coming to you in the word of truth is the same thing as him saying God came to you in the word of truth. He speaks of the gospel as a living and active reality. And what is it that the gospel does when it acts? First and foremost, it produces faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. The virtues of faith, hope, and love are the evidence of gospel transformation. Your theology your doctrine, your beliefs are going to ebb and flow. I just turned 49. The beliefs that give expression to my experience of faith are very different than they were whenever I was 29 years old. And in fact, I mean, how many of you over the last 10 years have changed your mind over some significant idea or doctrine in your faith look at over half of us we've changed our thinking about those things <laughs> how many of you would say I'm frankly embarrassed about some of the things that I espoused when I was say in my 20s no discouragement there are 20 somethings here um, but uh, but absolutely it's, it's, some of my beliefs embarrass me now but you know what at the time I was very zealous for those things I would, have def I would have defended those things in fact if you would have challenged me hard enough I would have taken out my sword and started slashing at you if you questioned those doctrines too much that's the value of getting older and more mature isn't it we realize to value the things that God values and to value less the accolades and the systems that man val values and so, and so what we want to look to in, in our gospel faithfulness is not simply the information that we believe, but whether or not there's evidence of real virtue being produced in our heart because of our convictions. Are we a people of increasing faith, of increasing hope, and of increasing love? Now, this is the fruit that we should be expecting, not just to grow, but to flourish in our lives. In fact, if you think about uh, 1 Corinthians 13, these virtues are not even equal. They, 
Paul talks about these virtues in 1 Corinthians 13 as though they are a hierarchy. You remember that? Now, these, th these three remain, faith, hope, and love. Then he has the audacity to say, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these are, is love. The evidence that the gospel has taken root in my heart is an ever-expansive flourishing of love as the defining characteristic of my life. The evidence that God has taken root in my heart is an ever-expansive flourishing of love as the defining characteristic of my life. Now, I'm not saying love as a work that earns my worth, but I'm saying love as evidence or of a fruit that I'm actually allowing the Spirit to bear in my life. Look at, in fact, what he says in the next few verses, the last part of verse 6 through verse 8. It is... It, meaning the gospel, is bearing fruit and growing. Everyone say bearing fruit and growing. Good job. I know it's a little annoying, but I'm a little annoying. Um, <laughs> it is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learn this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he has told us, look at this, about what? Your love in the spirit. Now think about that for just a second. He didn't come and report the points of their doctrine. He didn't come and report how sophisticated and how right their theology had become. What he says is this, I know the gospel is at work among you because I've heard about your love in the spirit. I've heard about your love for the brothers and sisters. I've learned about your love for others. And because I've heard about your love, I know that that means that the gospel is flourishing. It is bearing fruit and it is growing. So let's take a moment to think about this idea of the gospel. What I want us to see is that the gospel is a revelation. It is not a set of information. The gospel is a living seed that is planted and bears fruit and continues to grow. This word translated growing in the original languages simply means to make grow, to cause to increase, and to become greater to make grow, to cause to increase, and to become better. In other words, the gospel is not merely information to be affirmed, but rather a revelation to be trusted and experienced. The gospel is a revelation that as we are encountered by it and as we trust it, returns us to our original purpose of human flourishing in the dream of God. That's what the gospel does. It is not just information we affirm. It is a revelation that we are to trust and we are called to experience. And that experience should, should continue to bear ever-increasing fruit in our lives. This experience is supposed to increase as we continue in the faith. So, the characteristics of the gospel as the action of God are that it grows and bears fruit. And what fruit does it bear? Faith, 
hope, and love. The continued fruit of trusting the gospel is increasing faith, increasing hope, and increasing love. Now, as this fruit increases, toxic fruit should decrease. As this fruit increases, toxic fruit should decrease. In fact, I would submit to you the thought that if the growth in the gospel means an increase of faith, hope, and love, then it should be a, it should be a, a systematic decrease of cynicism, fear, and despair. So now we're looking at both sides of the coin. The one side of the coin says you should see an evidence of increasing faith, hope, and love. And I'm suggesting that the corollary is also true. You should be experiencing a decrease of cynicism, fear, and despair because trusting the gospel systematically uproots cynicism, fear, and despair. The gospel should create a contrast with lesser ways of living. The gospel should create a contrast with lesser ways of living. The thing about systematic religion that I don't want to say as a blanket final authoritative statement. I am just trying to shift between my journey as a student, my journey as a teacher, and my journey as a practitioner. Because all three of these affect my understanding of the faith. And one of the things I've observed as I've been a practitioner and student of evangelicalism um, as I've sought to, quote, make it work for my own self, and I sought very hard to pretend like it was working when it wasn't. When I journeyed in evangelicalism to the point where my ideological evangelicalism became my savior rather than Jesus being my savior, I still tried to buttress it up. And one of the things that I learned to do very well is that when you talk about systematic ideology, even religious systems that are organized, and we allow Genesis chapter 3 to speak to us metaphorically, not just literally, then what we see is this. Man has always struggled with the simplicity of just walking with God in innocence. I think Genesis 3 says he came to walk with them in the cool of the day. And like that's the offer on one hand. But the other offer is you can get away from that innocent, intimately walking with God and instead shortcut the process and get all your questions answered. You can have all the information you need to speak with authority. And so then, rather than walking God with an innocence and intimacy, I go to this tree that promises to answer my questions. Because see, God is more interested in the relationship than he is in satisfying my intellectual curiosity. But in my pride, I don't always appreciate that. I want my questions answered. So I go to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And that affects every, that has a potential impact on every discipline, even the virtuous disciplines like theology and religion. It means that if I want to, I can relate to God from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and avoid the evil side of the tree and just eat off the good side that is religion. And so what happens is, as, you, as in, in the title, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and, and as you look at that story where their eyes are open and they know good and evil just like God, what it means is we then adopt the godlike posture of being able to be the judge over what's good and evil. And, and we tend, those virtues that are cultivated both by our temperament and our community and our upbringing, those things that come more natural to us, those are called good and the things that other people do that we don't struggle with, those are called evil. And we condemn those and we reform our, and we reform our practices and condemn these practices. But then if you get into evangelicalism, we do the same thing. This is just a thought offered to you all in humility so that as you leave and eat your pompous pizza, you can ponder and discuss. My experience in evangelicalism is that we have unacceptable deeds of the flesh, without a doubt. We'll post about them, we'll march against them, we'll embarrass and condemn people who commit them. But what we don't contend with in our collective sin is that we have deemed that there's another category called acceptable deeds of the flesh. If I do the unacceptable deeds of the flesh, I'm not stupid. I know I'll get rejected. I know I'll get condemned. So even if I actually practice these deeds, I get really good at making sure you all don't think that I do. I get really good at hiding that and keeping it to myself. But I can practice the acceptable deeds of the flesh in full sunlight and not get condemned, and in some cases, get an applause. There are churches that you can see from the past few months that chant in the house, the assembly of the saints, let's go Brandon, for example. Now, I'm not gonna get all into that detail if you don't know what I'm talking about, but it's, it's, a euf, it's a euphemism for something that we all understand that we should never say out in public. And yet, you can see clips of churches chanting this. Why? It's because that is an acceptable deed of the flesh. Here's another one. We don't want you to talk about any of your struggles with sexual exploration and diversity but if you gossip about someone who is pursuing sexual diversity or other actions that becomes okay you see what I'm saying so we split even the things that the Bible condemns and calls them unacceptable you say well the sexual perversion is unacceptable but the gossiping and tearing down and the judging and the harm that we're doing for these for whom we're supposed to be reaching out in grace and mercy, if you do that, you get a pass. Not only do you get a pass, 
but sometimes you're celebrated as being more faithful as you engage in these acceptable deeds of the flesh. Or maybe, obviously, if I were uh, struggling with heroin or alcoholism, that would be a bad thing. It could threaten both my job and my status in the community. But I can go years not laying down my life for my wife and no one will bat an eye. No one will ever challenge me. I've never been in an accountability group that asked me if I was consistently laying down my life for my wife, ever, not once. And in fact, I've been in groups where we have disrespected our partners and our women and joked about it and everyone laughs and no one rebukes. So we have to be aware that we've done this. We set this up, unacceptable deeds of the flesh and acceptable deeds of the flesh. And what we think is, these are the ones that will bring us down. I will submit to you that Christian faith is hindered by folks in the church, not so much by their blatant endorsement of unacceptable deeds in the flesh, but we are harmed by the comfort level that we have with the acceptable deeds of the flesh. Does that make sense? So you start categorizing, putting those two in those categories. And here's the thing, I'm very well aware that I need to repent when these characterize my life, but I don't even notice when this has become the characteristic of my life, even though it's still in opposition to the fruit of the spirit. What I am saying is among those acceptable deeds of the flesh, is that it's okay to live a life of cynicism, fear, and despair that leads to um, hate and rejection and self-protective postures. And I am saying that the gospel ought to be uprooting these sins as well. What I will confess to you, my friends, is that how it happens with me is that I start feeling very sorry for myself for some reason or another. I struggle with depression. I struggle with insomnia. When these things come together, they increase my sense of self-pity. When I indulge my self-pity, then I get angry. And anger always justifies rebellion. Anger always justifies rebellion. When I myself or I see others bound by this dark, cynical, negative, angry attitude, I promise you what's happening is the acceptable deeds of the flesh are about to give way to the unacceptable deeds of the flesh because that anger will justify my rebellion. What I'm saying is the gospel, when it takes root, is not just about me not cussing anymore and not listening to Eminem as much as I used to. The gospel, when it takes fruit, means that I challenge my dark negative thinking and words that I'm saying. I challenge my cynicism. I challenge my fear. And I even challenge my despair because the gospel should be uprooting these toxic manifestations in my life. And it should be increasing the virtues of faith, hope, and love. We should be just as concerned with someone who doesn't control their negativity and anger as we are with someone who is falling prey to some more dramatic, unacceptable deed of the flesh. 
Because the self-pity and the anger and the cynicism will create this darkness within your soul and it will begin to create an obstacle to the flourishing of the gospel in our lives. So we have to ask ourselves a question and it's really important that we answer that question. And it really doesn't mean anything how I answer the question. Because ultimately how I answer the question really only has meaning for me. You have to answer this question. In the presence of the Holy Spirit, you have to ponder what it means for yourself. The question is, does growth in the gospel call for our cooperation? Does growth in the gospel call for our cooperation? On the one side of this road is a ditch, and that ditch is legalism. And it says your growth in the gospel and your growth in your favor before God rests upon your discipline to eradicate negative behaviors and to establish more virtuous behaviors. If you do this, then you will grow in the gospel and you will grow in your understanding and experience of God. The issue with that is it, it says no to cooperation. It says it's my job. And, and it's where we're a funny group of people because we wouldn't say that out loud but essentially if you talk to people it's like yeah Jesus covered my sins up until the point that I became a Christian and at that point it kind of became up to me well you were better off not being a Christian and letting Jesus cover you than you are taking it upon yourself and taking that responsibility to work out your salvation on your own so there's that ditch but then there's another ditch that we might call the let go and let God ditch which is which is really convenient because I'm just gonna let God, and therefore I'm not gonna press against the more difficult questions regarding my personal responsibility. I'm gonna let go and let God and continue to be a self-pitying, angry, cynical person, and if God wants to change me, he can. Well, I think both of these are ditches. I think that what we're looking for is an understanding of what it means to engage in spirit-empowered cooperation with the gospel. Yes, Grace is opposed to earning. However, grace is not opposed to effort. How do we accomplish our growth in the gospel then? How do we do it in a healthy, balanced, cooperative sense? I'm so glad you asked. So as we get ready to close, let's turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 says this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit let us not become conceited provoking one another and envying one another verse 25 if we live by the spirit let us also keep in step with the spirit this speaks to the rhythm of our lives and whether or not that rhythm allows us to live from that inner lucidity that the spirit brings, that inner light, that revelation. It speaks to whether or not I am walking this out on my own 
with my own limited resources or if I'm paying attention to what the Spirit says and how the Spirit is leading. I mean, I just, I wish we had time to just sit and talk to examples about this because I don't want this to be an empty concept. But I will tell you this, there was a moment when what I read in Focus on the Family Parenting book, books no longer worked for me. They didn't work. And even if they worked better for one of my children, they didn't work at all for another children, my other child. But you know what did work? Is when instead of resting on all the information from these books, I came to a point of emptiness and despair and say, I've got no more tricks off my sleeve. God, what do I do? And then the spirit directs my parenting. And now my parenting is not about behavior modification or even the inconvenience of my kids not disrupting my life with their rebellion, but instead I get God's heart for my child. And I began to understand things about their temperament and their own woundedness. I began to understand there are ways, things I can say to child number one and number two that I can't say in the same way to child number three. But, I don't, but you won't find that in a book that comes from living and learning to respond to what the Spirit is leading us to do. Same is true for our marriages, our jobs, all of our relationships. What's astounding about evangelicals? is we have access to the wisdom of the ages residing in our souls and we rarely stop to consult it. We usually go outside of ourselves to try to figure out how we're supposed to handle our life's circumstance. But the truth is, and I'm gonna use this word, and if it offends you, please give me an opportunity to clarify. But the truth of the matter is, when you look at the New Testament, our faith is a very mystical reality. It is about what God is doing inside and how that is working itself out outwardly in our virtues and in our behaviors. So how do we cooperate? Well, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. We do not cooperate with, with the gospel by striving to produce gospel fruit. So if you've ever like read the fruit of the Spirit and said, okay, these are the virtues I've got to go do. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, no, if you have to go do these virtues, you need to look at a deeper problem, which is you don't have any faith in the gospel at all. Because if you did trust the gospel, if you did give yourself over to his revelation, you wouldn't have to work to produce these virtues. These would be the fruit of your life. And so that's what Paul says. We don't cooperate in the spirit by striving to produce gospel fruit. We cooperate with the gospel by choosing to change the rhythm of our lives by keeping in step with the Spirit so that we can keep in step with the Spirit. It's every day being able to answer this question, what is the Spirit calling you to do today? Now the Spirit's always there, but what I've learned is the pace of my life either allows me to be positioned to be aware of what the Spirit's leading or it creates an obstacle for me in being aware of what the Spirit, of how the Spirit's leading. What is the Spirit calling you to do today? Relationships are the area where the crisis of the kingdom plays out. Relationships are the area where the crisis of the kingdom plays out. Now, I don't like that. I want the crisis of the kingdom to play out in my commitment to my church activity or my commitment to my doctrine, all of these things that I can control. But in truth, the crisis of the kingdom is played out in my relationships. And I think that I've heard enough of your stories to know none of us are interested in a religious experience that looks good on Sunday morning, but leaves us with impoverished relationships whenever we go home. 
So I don't want to alienate anybody. I know that we all have relationships where this is played out. But I strongly want to end with this. If you are married, pursue a laser-focused goal of measuring your love for God by your love for your partner or your spouse. Be driven to Christ so that he loves them through you as they are loved by you. He loves through you as they're loved by you. If you are driven to make Christ the center of your love. This is the gospel. It should be making us not more haughty people and not people who know more than we used to. It should make us people who, are more, who have more faith, more hope, and more love than we had two years ago. Because this is the ongoing fruit of the gospel that is supposed to grow and bear fruit. So, as the worship team comes forward, I want to begin with encouraging you to have two conversations this week. And one of them you can begin to have right now with your Lord at his table as we create some space here for you to quiet your souls and to reflect just a moment. Number one, to what extent would you say the fruit of the gospel, well, I should have said is evident in your life. I've got my tenses wrong. But then I was reading faith, hope, and love, and I used R. But to what extent would you say the fruit of the gospel is evident in your life? And, and you really need to own this. It's really interesting. If you get together in accountability groups and you ask people how they've struggled, man, everybody can talk about their sin till the cows come home. But if you ask about what the Spirit of God has done in their life, it's crickets. I really feel like we need to do a really good job of like reversing that. Like we should be more aware of how God, how the Spirit has led us than we should about how the enemy has deceived us in the past week. And so, and so, so that's, so first name it. Can you see? I know, I know that as self-centered as I am, I am way less shelf, shellfish. I'm a crab. Uh, <laughs> good Lord. Less selfish than I was five years ago. I know I can see it. I know how my thinking has altered to where I can go into a situation and my first thought isn't, how is this going to affect me? I've actually had moments where I've thought, how does this affect my wife and my children or my congregation? Those thoughts have entered into my mind in the past five years. They weren't there before. Why are they there now? Because the Spirit has been faithful. And so we need to look and see how has the gospel produced fruit in your life? I have a spiritual experience every time I walk outside now. Folks, that never happened before. And now it happens all the time to where I long for the moment when I walk outside in the mornings with my dogs. The first thing that I have to do is get up, because they're usually the ones waking me up, and I walk outside and I behold the glory of God. And sometimes I stand out there in the chill and I weep. That is because of the fruit of the gospel in my life. I couldn't see all that before until the Holy Spirit began to work. So where would you say the fruit of the gospel is evident? And then what are the obstacles that might be hindering the flourishing of the gospel in your life? So would you all stand with me? And instead of figuring that question out for yourself, Come to the Lord's table. Take a moment to pray and ask the Spirit, will you show me where gospel fruit is evident? And would you be so kind as to show me 
where I am tolerating things that are creating obstacles to the flourishing of the gospel in my heart and in my life.